I uh, put a handout by the door. If you didn't get one of the handouts, you might want to pick it up now. So this morning I wanted to, um, I wanted to structure the teachings around one particular text. It's a text, it's a relatively little, lesser known text in some ways. Um, It's in the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the smaller books in the smaller collections of the suttas. And um, until recently, there hadn't been very many translations into English. In fact, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi is coming out with a translation of the Sutta Nipata. I think that'll come out next year. Um, and so there hasn't, it hasn't been too accessible in English translation, this, this text. I first uh, got interested in it I don't know how long ago now, maybe six, seven years ago, when um, Gil, um, my colleague at uh, IMC, said, this is a really important text, and I think we need to give a day long on it, and I don't have time to do it. Would you do it? I said, I don't even know what that text is. I've never even read it. You know, what is it? And he told me a few things about it, and I said, well, that sounds interesting, but I'm not ready to give a day long on something I've not even looked at. He said, well, let's put it on the calendar. And I said, okay, let's put it on the calendar in six months. And I spent six months studying this text. Um, And it was uh, a really powerful time for me, studying this text. And so that's one thing I just, I say, because, you know, in talking about orientations to practice, you know, some of you have mentioned, um, oh, I think I'll pick up this theme for a while and, and look at it. Um, sometimes we can enter into a study and just let's see where it goes. You know, don't give yourself a limitation on it. In this case, I did. It's like, okay, I have to have something to say in six months. Um, but, um, you know, to really give yourself time to explore a, a teaching. Um, I found this particular text to be very, very rich. Maybe we can turn the sound down just slightly. Um, Basically, the text is, uh, well, there's a couple of interesting things about it. One is that um, generally scholars understand this particular text to be um, an early teaching of the Buddha. Is that, is that loud enough or does it need to be a little louder? A little louder. Um, the The the, there's a couple of things that indicate that it might be an early teaching. One of those is that um, it's one of the few texts which is referred to in other places in the suttas. So there's, there's 
a commentary about it and people saying, hey, have you memorized that, that the Atakavaga? Can you, can you repeat that? And uh, so the, there, it, has, it is mentioned and kind of held up as a, as a revered teaching in the, in the suttas themselves. And so that's one thing that indicates that it might be an earlier teaching. Another is that the language, the Pali that this particular um, uh, text is recorded in is a more archaic form of Pali. Um, the, the text is written in poetry, however, and so uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu points out that in general poetry in the texts, when, they're, when the Buddha breaks into verse or people use poetry in the, the suttas, it tends to be a more archaic form of Pali. And he, so he says it's not necessarily a good argument for it being an early text that it's in this earlier form of Pali. Um, but the other piece about it that, you know, this is more my sense, uh, not so much from scholars, but the picture it gives of the Buddha is kind of that of a solitary monk. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the Buddha wandering around without a bunch of, about a, without a big retinue of people. It's not like he's sitting there talking to 500 monks. He's wandering around the countryside, running into people and having conversations with them. That's the flavor of this text. Uh, so it gives me, I mean, it kind of, as I, I read it and let myself settle into this text, I got a very uh, visceral sense of what some of the early teaching years of the Buddha might have looked like. The other thing that I find interesting about this, this text is that it doesn't refer to most of what we think of as the Buddha's teachings. Four Noble Truths are not mentioned. The Eightfold Path is not mentioned. Transcendent dependent origination is not mentioned, although there's a place in there where there's a kind of a conditioned chain that's very like transcendent dependent origination. The theme of this particular teaching is suffering and uh, it's resultant, resulting from clinging. So clinging and how that leads to suffering is a key theme. Non-clinging as the, uh, hmm, the path to freedom is a key theme. So really this, it points to perhaps, you know, some of the early teachings of the Buddha really directly pointing to non-clinging. Don't cling. You know, a, a temple mentioned Joseph's um, quote the other day, you know, nothing should be clung to as I, me, or mine. That particular quote is not in here, but this orientation is like, don't cling. Don't cling to anything. Keep looking at where you're clinging and release that. Release that. Release that. Freedom is the result of non-clinging. That's the, the direction that this teaching points. So the text itself is relatively short. It's uh, 16 poems, about 210 verses. Uh, the, the title of the, um, the text, the Atakavaga, means something like the chapter of the eights or the chapter of the octads. And um, 
It's a little mysterious about why it's called that because there's a, the first maybe a couple of poems have eight verses or eight sections to them, but after that it's, you know, there's no connection to eights as far as I can tell. <laughs> so uh, we don't know why it's called this, but that's the name it's been given. So because it's, it's relatively short, but it's long enough that, and deep enough actually, that all I'm going to be able to do, all we're gonna really be able to do in this session is to get a sense of how this, uh, this teaching teaches, what it points to, and I hope personally to give you some interest in exploring it. To me, it's got a kind of the flavor of direct pointing, direct pointing to liberation, direct pointing to freedom. It uses um, uh, almost like koan-like teachings at some points to kind of shake the mind up, uh, particularly around views, uh, clinging to views. So um, we're not gonna be able to go through the entire teaching in detail. What I'd like to do is to give you a flavor of it and hope that some of you find this teaching to be of interest and um, to uh, pick it up for study. It is a kind of a complex or, or in some ways it, it feels, because of this koan-like nature, it, it, it deserves time. You know, it's kind of like you read something and you go, what? It's like, read it and go, I'll just sit with that for a while. You know, not, not try to figure it out intellectually, but just let yourself sit with it. So I hope that this inspires some of you to, um, to look at this text. So the, the way this poem, this set of poems teaches, and this, I, I spent, you know, as I said, I spent six months studying it, and I used a couple of key sources. I used um, one um, um, master's thesis, or no, PhD thesis on the topic um, by Grace Burford, if any of you are interested in going into an academic uh, study of it. Uh, her name is Grace Burf Burford, and I think it's called Desire and... I'll get the, I'll get the reference for you. Um, so she wrote, she wrote a uh, PhD thesis on the topic. And then I also used Tanisaro Bhikkhu's um, comments, his notes on, on this text. He's translated it. That translation is on access to insight. I, find, um, I, I found as many translations as I could doing this study. And that's another thing I'd point you to if you want to study a particular text. It's useful to find as many translations as you can. Um, and so I found as many translations as I could. I searched the internet and found several others. One of the key ones that I found that I use a lot of here is a Bhikkhu Virado, uh, a version by Bhikkhu Virado. So Tanasaro Bhikkhu um, has a translation. Uh, Saratisa has a translation. Norman has a translation. So there's, there's some out there. Gil Fransdahl is coming out with a translation later this year. Uh, he'll have the, the text with commentaries. Um, so that may be an, also a great source if you're interested in studying it. So primarily I use this PhD thesis and Tanisaro Bhikkhu's notes on, on the, um, the text. And one of the key points he made that really helped me in the study of this teaching is he said there's kind of three key uh, views that this 
uh, teaching looks at. And you can look at any of the verses and basically see it's coming from one of these three perspectives. And so as you read this text, he said, see which of the three perspectives this teaching is coming from. And those three perspectives are the perspective of an ordinary person, someone who's caught by clinging. That perspective. Then the, the uh, second perspective is the perspective of someone who's free. What does it look like when somebody is not clinging? And the third perspective is, how do we get from one to the other? What's the training? So it's very simple. You know, in structure, if you, if you see this kind of overarching structure, it's really simple. What's it like to be caught? What's it like to be free? And how do we become free? So I'd like to explore um, some of these verses with you. Um, I have made selections, and I took the liberty in um, putting this handout together to edit this, these translations for gender neutrality. Um, it, it began to get a little heavy to me. <laughs> Hearing he, 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 <laughs> everywhere. And so I changed the, so these are not the direct um, translations, but I have changed them for gender neutrality. So this first one, Sutta One, this, the Kama Sutta on Central Pleasures, is kind of a description of um, somebody who's caught by clinging, clinging to sense pleasure. You know, this is, there's, there's, Key, key ways that we cling. And in later teachings, the Buddha codified the four kinds of clinging. You know, this is, this, I think another interesting thing about this teaching is its absence of lists. You know, it doesn't have, oh, here are the four kinds of clinging. It's, it talks about clinging. Um, but in later teachings, it, it talked about, you know, clinging to sense pleasure, clinging to rites and rituals, clinging to identity view, um, um, clinging to... The sense of conceit, is that it, Sally? Do you remember? It's the four kinds of clinging. <laughs> um, anyway, and in any case, the, uh, oh, view, views. So views separate from identity view, from um, sense pleasure and rites and rituals, the main four kinds of clinging. Um, this particular text focuses on sense pleasure and views as the, the real exploration of clinging. And so this first one looks at what does it look like when we're clinging to sense pleasure? How does that look? If one, longing for sens sensual pleasure, achieves it, yes, they're enraptured at heart. The mortal gets what they want. But if for that person, longing, desiring, the pleasure diminishes, they're shattered as if shot by an arrow. One who is greedy is overpowered by weakness, is trampled by trouble, for pain invades them as water a cracked boat. So that pointing to the drawbacks of sense pleasure. You know, and we all know that this is something that uh, takes some practice to really begin to get. Because of that, when we achieve it, yes, we're, we, we get that moment of, yeah, this is good. 
And yet, because of the law of impermanence, the, the truth, the reality of impermanence, the getting of that is not uh, lasting. And so there's this cycle of, oh, that didn't last. Where else can I get something? Oh, let me find it. And when we lose the things, that the Buddha talks about that being the, the pain invading us, like water leaking into a cracked boat. Another um, discourse on this, the second one that I put here, the discourse on the cave. Longing for what's over or for what's to come, yearning for pleasures in the present and pleasures of the past, those who are greedy for pleasure, hunting for it, deranged, selfish, have entered the wrong road. Again, pointing to the... Um, the sense that, you know, yeah, there's some perhaps pleasure that we get or some sense of gratification that we get from getting what we want, but that ultimately that not being the road to a deeper happiness, a truer happiness, a, fr a more free kind of happiness, one that's not dependent on the conditions of the world. And then this uh, verse 777 Look at them, floundering amidst their cherished possessions like fl fish in a dwindling stream. That um, image to me came in, in my meditation. You know, just that the, the, I think the Buddha's analogies are very evocative. Um, and I was, I was sitting in a, I was in a meditation at one point in a long retreat and just watching my mind flipping, where can I get happiness? Where? And it, it felt like this flopping, this fish flopping around. It's like the mind is flopping around looking for something to make it happy. And this image came to me of the fish in a dwindling stream and I laughed, you know, it's like, oh, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's that sense of the mind just grasping for someplace, someplace to find pleasure, the dwindling stream. So those are some of the drawbacks that what happens as we cling to sense pleasure, this pointing, you know, we have to have the understanding that there's a drawback to clinging to sense pleasure or we're never going to uh, look at what, what else might be possible. The next piece that um, uh, I want to look at is, so this is the, the clinging to, uh, to sense pleasure, these pieces. And now the third piece, uh, or the second piece, what does it look like, what happens when somebody clings to views? Because this is the other key piece of this teaching, looking at clinging. So these um, verses that describe the drawbacks to clinging to views. Abiding by fixed opinions and pleased with themselves, they say, my opponent's a fool, they're no expert. Upon whatever basis they regard their opponent a fool is the same upon which they regard themselves an expert. To the extent to which they rate themselves expert, they despise anyone else who make the same claim. And one of my favorite lines of this whole text those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. We see this. 
We see this daily right now <laughs> in our political uh, primary season. Those who maintain a view and dispute, saying this alone is true, is criticism all they experience? So this is from a questioner. So this is one of those suttas that describes, you know, the Buddha just talking to somebody. So he's having a conversation with this person about views, and he said, you know, hey, clinging to views isn't helpful. And this, this person says, but, but they may, that when they maintain a view and, and dispute, and they say this alone is true, you know, is criticism all they experience? Don't they also get something useful? Don't they also receive praise? And the Buddha responds, what they receive is trifling. Not enough to bring any peace of mind. So again, here we're pointing to what, what is possible and the whole notion of clinging to views, bringing some kind of praise, you know, the value that people put on the praise being, that's what I want to go for. The Buddha said, that's trifling. You know, that's like, this little tiny benefit does not bring them any peace of mind. I say there are only two consequences of dispute, praise and criticism. Seeing this, you should not dispute. Regard instead non-dispute the grounds for peace. Now, this can challenge us, this particular uh, kind of statement in some ways, you know, the, um, uh, when we have people holding up a particular perspective that is oppressive, that is, um, you know, like, you know, a certain political candidate. Um, holding up the perspective of let's build a wall, you know, let's. Um, and so to, uh, to, you know, to, to just let that sit in the world, we, it kind of feels to us like if I don't dispute that, aren't I letting that, you know, go forward? Aren't I letting that kind of take over? And, you know, I think to some extent, you know, when we look at what's happening in this text, there's times, and I don't have an example in the handout, I don't think, but there are times when the Buddha is saying, you know, well, oh, there's one that I can remember where somebody says, you know, aren't there many kinds of truths? Aren't there, are, you know, doesn't everybody have their own truth? And the Buddha said, no, there is one truth. And so it's not that the Buddha is not, you know, coming and saying, this is what's right, this is what's true, this is what's valuable, this is the direction we should go. But I think that non-dispute is around the clinging. The clinging that um, I'm right, you're wrong. The, that the clinging is where we, we get caught, not through the recognition of this is the direction, this needs, this wholesome uh, direction needs to be put into the world. 
So I, I don't think the Buddha is just saying, you know, the Buddha didn't just sit there when people said, um, said things that he felt were inappropriate. He didn't just sit there. He, he said, no, that's not the way it is. And so this is a little bit of a paradox right here. You know, the Buddha said non-dispute is the grounds for peace. And yet, when we read this text, it sounds like he's disputing. So what is that? You know, what does that mean? How can we understand the uh, non-dispute within what seems to be dispute? And that's what I'd like to encourage us to explore in our own lives. Like, you know, so, yeah, I want to get out there and say, Building a wall is not the way. Kicking out all the Muslims is not the way. This is not what's helpful. This is not what's wholesome. So I want to get out there and say that. But what does it mean to do that without hating, without constriction? So that's, that's the exploration here that I, I feel that... What, so non-dispute is the grounds for peace. It doesn't mean not saying what's in the direction of the wholesome. But how can we do that without the constriction? And if we do it with the constriction, know that. You know, this is our practice. We feel, oh, ugh, I hate you for saying that. Ugh. That doesn't feel good, but that's where I am. Okay, can I know that? Can I know the suffering of that hatred? Not at the point of being able to let that go. But I can know it and know that it's suffering. That begins, you know, I, I think so, so many times as we explore suffering, and this speaks to some of that um, spiritual bypass, right? You know, it's like, if we were just to say, oh, I shouldn't hate, you know, it's like, that's, what's, that's not what's happening right now. If I, should, if I were to like step aside from that feeling of, I don't like that being put out into the world. That doesn't feel good. Ugh, I constrict around it. I get angry about it. Can I open to that and, and begin through that opening to that? It's like my, my sense and my understanding of how the practice works is this. I open to that constriction. Wisdom begins to tease apart the piece of that that is wisdom, and the piece of that that is aversion, greed, confusion. And so if I were to just step aside from it entirely, I would miss the wisdom that needs to be revealed in that exploration. So I open to those places of constriction, confusion. Don't be afraid of them. They open us to wisdom and compassion and understanding how to hold the, uh, the, you know, this is a koan for me, that non-disputing dispute, but it's like, okay, can I hold that? Can I hold that possibility and explore where it feels like it's not happening? Ooh, I hope I get through this. Okay, where am I? So, clinging to views. Then, um, the next 
way this teaching teaches is um, what does it look like to be someone who's liberated? And this is interesting. Um, liberation in this text. Well, let me, let's read it first, and then I'll talk a little bit about, about that. So, um, some verses from uh, the Atakavaga describing someone who is free. The questioner, again, solitary person the Buddha's having a conversation with, questioner asks, having what vision, being of what character is one called peaceful? Gautama, tell me about the supreme person. The Buddha responds, a person who is not angered, not frightened, not boastful, not fretful, who gives wise advice, who is calm, restrained in speech, who is indeed a sage, a person who is not attached to the future, who does not sorrow over the past, who finds solitude amidst sense contact and is not guided by fixed views, a person who is retiring, not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy, not impudent, not arousing contempt, who does not engage in malicious speech, a person who does not relish pleasure, who is not arrogant, who is mild and of ready wit, who is not credulous, who by nothing is repelled, a person who does not take on the training in hopes of material gain, who is unperturbed if they get nothing, who is not hampered by wishes and not greedy for flavors, a person who is even-tempered, ever-attentive, who does not suppose that in the world they are equal, superior, or inferior, who is free of conceit, a person for whom there are no tethers, who in knowing the truth is not tethered in any way, and in whom no wishes are found for existence or non-existence. This is someone I call peaceful. They are indifferent to sense pleasure. In them bonds are not found. They have overcome attachment. The sage, free of greed and selfishness, does not speak of oneself as among those who are superior, equal, or inferior. The sage regards nothing in the world as one's own and does not grieve because what, of what does not exist. Not blindly following religious teachings, such a one is truly called peaceful. So, what's most... A couple pieces about this, you know, it's like mostly what it describes. It's like, this is not, okay, someone who's peaceful has attained this refined state of Nibbana. It describes them living in the world and what that person looks like living in the world. Primarily, it reads as a description of what they are not. Not angry, not frightened, not boastful, no blind faith. There's a few areas where it points to qualities of mind that are present, wise, calm, even-tempered, attentive. This also may be challenging for us to some extent. But I think, so the, the 
the fact that it points to what we are not, you know, what, what is a free person? It doesn't say what that person is. It says what they're not. And this speaks to a, a really kind of radical direction of the Buddha's pointing. He wasn't talking about freedom as something we get, as something to have. He was speaking about what needs to be released for freedom to happen. This to me speaks, you know, in some ways to the, to the you know, the, the Buddha didn't say, oh, when somebody is free, this is what they do, this is what they look like. He said, this is what's not happening. And so, you know, someone who's not angry, not boastful, not frightened, not uh, clinging to blind faith, how that person is in the world, what they do, can look many different ways. You know, there's not one result of freedom. So to me, this, while it, it's a little bit, you know, unfamiliar to us to hear, well, what somebody is not, it leaves space for a lot of different expressions of freedom. One thing that is kind of absent and this I, you know, I need to hold a little bit. I'm not, not sure, you know, how to, how to live with this or, you know, be with this. It's a question I hold, a koan kind of in my heart. This text does not speak of the Brahma-viharas as much. It doesn't say this person has love, is compassionate. It speaks of the absence of suffering, the absence of fear. The absence of hate. And so, you know, we often speak about, um, you know, the, the, as those things fall away, the kind of the natural result of the heart, and we spe- have been speaking about the Brahma-viharas in this practice, is the kind of the natural expression of the heart that's free. And this is how I hold this in this text. The Buddha isn't saying, yeah, you have to go out there and find love with the freedom from all of these uh, constricting qualities, what results? What happens? Maybe that, maybe certain beings have the expression of it looking like just equanimity, just wisdom. Maybe other beings are more active in the world, expressing compassion and love. So again, the this, this is something to hold in our hearts. How do, how do we hold this question in our hearts? Elsewhere in this text, aside from this one that I read, liberation is described in terms of qualities of someone who's free. And again, It brings in wisdom, silence, calmness. They're mindful. They see, they know. 
They're equanimous. So the liberated person is described in terms of what's released, certain qualities that are present, And to me, this is actually inspiring because the picture of freedom in this text is one that I can envision living in the world. It's one that I can envision walking around and acting and speaking and being in the world. This text emphasizes freedom in this life. It does not speak or point to so much. There's a few places where the Theravada tradition has said, oh, here's where it's talking about um, freedom in the next life, or here's where it's talking about the transcendent quality of, of liberation. But as I read those verses, I think, I don't know, you know, it sounds like it's just describing not clinging to future existence. It doesn't say whether future existence exists or not. You know, so, so the, the, the kind of transcendental quality of liberation, of freeing ourselves from the cycle of rebirth, it's not particularly found in this teaching. This teaching in some ways contrasts pretty strongly with the standard Theravada description of one who's liberated, which is that, you know, that being who has freed themselves from the cycle of rebirth, you know, the kind of transcendent quality of Nibbana that breaks the, the bounds of, of rebirth. And here the teaching is, don't cling to either rebirth or non-rebirth. Just don't cling. Clinging is the issue. Let go of clinging. And to me, this is, this is, a, this is a direct pointing to teaching. It's like clinging is the, is, the, is the exploration. When there's clinging, can I know that? Can I not do a spiritual bypass and say, oh, I shouldn't cling here, but can I open to that? Can I know that? As clinging releases, Certain wisdom is understood. There are deeper and deeper levels of clinging that get revealed. You know, as the grosser kinds of clinging to sense pleasure are released, we see how we're clinging in other ways. And then those we explore and release. My inspiration here is that I don't know what Nibbana is. I don't know what full liberation is. I don't know. I know the freedom that comes from the non-clinging I've experienced. That direction, I, it's like, yeah, I'm heading that way. I trust that way lies more and more peace. What it looks like with full non-clinging, I have no idea. But I'm willing to go there. I trust that is good, a good direction to go. So, the overwhelming majority of um, 
teaching in, the, in this text, the Atakavaga, points to freedom in this very life, in an, primarily as an unselfish, non-clinging, non-desirous way of living in the world. That's the description of someone who's free. Grace Burford, this person who wrote the, the doctoral thesis, said, the Atakavaga is exceptional even within the earliest Buddhist literature in its non-metaphysical presentation of the highest good achievable by humans. It is significant as an example of how the Buddhist ideal goal can be presented without all the usual problematic cosmological and metaphysical accessories that accompany it in its traditional Theravada doctrine. This teaching presents a coherent understanding of liberation without resorting to uh, multiple lives. Another uh, scholar, Gomez, says, the Atakavaga sets out to find a practical solution to human sorrow. Not merely the abstract sorrow of rebirth, but the everyday sorrow of strife and aggression. Then there's the path to freedom. The verses that describe, oh, let's read a a few of the verses that describe the relationship to views from the perspective of liberation also, which is the bottom of page four on the handout. One who is pure has no preconceived view about anything in the world. Having abandoned delusion and pride, they remain without attachment. Therefore, by what view would they go? One who is attached argues over religious teaching. But how and about what can you argue with one who is without attachment? There is nothing that they either take up or throw off. They are indeed free of every view in the world. Abandoning what they have taken up, free from any basis of attachment, they do not rely even upon knowledge. Amongst those in dispute, they do not take sides. They do not revert to any grasping of opinions whatsoever. Again, some challenging words about views, which I hope you can hold as a koan, as a question. Hmm. I guess I didn't put in your handout. Oh, I skipped it. Sorry. I read that too soon. Oh, well, we'll come back to that topic. Um, So now the next piece is the the training. The other set of how the Atakavaga teaches is through verses that describe the path of practice. What is it? What does it look like? So clinging is the, is the place where suffering is born. So how does one move from clinging to non-clinging? So here's uh, some descriptions of that. The questioner says, now, venerable sir, speak about the path of practice. A person of the Buddha, a person should not have covetous eyes, 
One should close one's ears to ordinary chatter, should not be greedy for flavors. One should not cherish anything in the world. One should be meditative, not footloosed. One should desist from worry, should not be indolent, should not live in lodgings where there is little noise. I'm going to skip down a little bit so to save some time. Um, 931, one should not be drawn into telling lies, nor be deliberately treacherous. One should not dispute others for their lowly way of life or wisdom or precepts or practices. If ascetics or ordinary people irritate one with their talkativeness, one should not respond harshly, for the peaceful do not retaliate. Knowing the Buddhist teaching, an ever-attentive person who investigates it should train in it. Knowing the cooling of desire as peace, one should not be negligent in applying Gautama's teaching. With regards to the Blessed One's teaching, one who is diligent should constantly venerate it by following his example. So what's interesting to me about this, as you read this, it's like, it sounds a lot. I mean, some of this may resonate a little bit from the description of someone who is free. In the basic path of practice here, instead of it being one is free from greed for flavors, one doesn't have worry, is not indolent. This is one should practice this. So the path, or a lot of the path of practice, especially in terms of our engagement in the world, is described as modeling the behavior of those who are free. What does that look like? A, a kind of a, another practice I sometimes explore. Now this is, this is an important um, hmm, piece here. In the exploration of this, as I have explored this, for instance, around patience. I did a practice for a while on patience, and impatience was huge in my uh, life. Big, big pattern. And what I discovered around this modeling piece, it's like, what does it look like when I'm feeling impatience to act as though I were patient? The key there to this practice is not to sidestep the impatience. You have to be completely, deeply honest with yourself about where you are in doing this modeling practice. And so, I've given this example before, I think, in this program, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention it again just in case I haven't. In cultivating or practicing patience, at one point I was in a grocery, in, in a, in a drugstore, and I was, um, you know, no, I was walking through the store, and I was really impatient. And I noticed the impatience, and I noticed that this impatience expressed itself by my picking up things off the sh off the shelf and throwing them in my basket. So there was a physical manifestation of the impatience that was expressing itself through the body. And um, so I, I began to look at, okay, here's this teaching of model patience. And that exploration of, I fully acknowledge, yep, impatience inside. So it's not about trying to create the mind of patience. But what I did is like, I began to smooth out my behavior. 
So I felt fully that, you know, that urge to throw things in the basket. I felt it completely, and yet I just moved it out, and I gently placed things in the basket. Feeling into that impatience all the while. It's almost like this practice of not letting the, fully knowing the impatience inwardly and seeing if it cannot leak out through any pore. What does that mean? What does that mean? And uh, as I explored that within, it was actually shocking. And this is a small one, and I encourage you to try this in the small, because in the large ones, probably, you, you know, if you're, if you're in the midst of, an, of a kind of a very charged situation, trying to model that is probably going to create the spiritual bypass, right? And, and I don't think that's useful. But in the small places, it's, it can be useful to explore this, the, the, you know, the, the little places like this, like impatience in the, in the drugstore. So the, uh, that practice of exploring, oh, you know, here's the, here's the um, feeling, and here's a patient, here's how I might act if I were patient. Within about a minute, the impatience had released, and I was patient. That very modeling had a rebound effect on the mind. By, by, by not repressing, I think if we're repressing that though, it's not going to have that same impact. And so this is a, it's a delicate practice. And I found it interesting and inspiring to play with, but it's very easy for this to be interpreted as spiritual bypass. So I, I, I really want to, to, to be careful in how we pick up this, this teaching of how the Buddha encourages us to model. But to me, too, this speaks to, to some extent, um, the path of practice and the goal of practice are not so different. You know, we, we cultivate the path of practice by modeling, heading ourselves towards where we end up, the non-clinging. So I want to go just a little bit longer um, to talk about views because this too is a, is a major aspect of the teaching um, in the Atakavaga. Um, so there's a lot of teaching on clinging to views here. And, for, and in this place, you know, there's, it's, it gets a little more nuanced in terms of how the path of practice works around views. At least that's my understanding. Um, so clinging to views, you know, we talked a little bit about the different kinds of ways we cling. Um, what kinds of views are there? There's the, the view I am, the view, the identity view, sense of identification. Uh, there's views around metaphysical reality that are clung to, and this is a, a piece of um, 
you know, a lot of the various debates that happened in the time of the Buddha were debating around, is the world infinite? Is the world finite? And, you know, only this is true. This, this, uh, everything else is wrong. You know, the world is transcendent. The world is not, you know, all of these different views about uh, the world. So speculative views about the nature of reality, essentially. And then all other views, opinions, and beliefs, um, views that we have in our cultures and our societies around um, oh, everything. The Buddha pointed to views and clinging to views as one of the key ways suffering happens in our world. And this is expressed uh, through the, um, the, the results of clinging to views, leads to dispute, to conflict, to war, to contention. And we see this. You know, view, view the, the view of, of race. You know, this is clearly, it's a concept. You know, it is a, uh, an idea. And how much suffering, conflict, sense of better, less than, equal to comes out of this perspective. The Buddha pointed to any clinging to views as being leading to strife, suffering. I think, you know, we may not be able to know what views we're clinging to. Often, views are in the realm of delusion. Views are in the realm of uh, kind of below the surface. Views are, are created in this dependence on our, on our culture, on our society. The, the uh, paper that Larry offered really points to that, how our sense of self, our sense of identity is conditioned by our culture. The views that we pick up, the beliefs that we pick up are so deeply embedded. Fam- views from family, views from culture, views from who we spend our time with as a child, views that are created as we um, move into ourselves as an adult. You know, the, the, the whole um, kind of uh, mind we're swimming in is often views that are not consciously articulated. And so views are often in this realm of not seen, you know, we're swimming in our views. It's like the fish in the water, not knowing the water. We're swimming in our views and we don't know them. And so in our uh, relationships with each other, rather than having the notion or the idea of I'm right, you're wrong, it's like, oh, different views are happening. Let's see, is that, you know, what, what view does this expose when there's conflict? That can, we can be curious about that. So when there's conflict, what views are being held to? This is, a, this is a, an exploration. So beginning to look at this, and anytime there's suffering, my understanding here is anytime there's suffering, some view is being clung to. Clung to. Some view is, is operating. And we may or may not be able to recognize the view immediately, but this can be a question we explore. So there's suffering happening here. We can feel into the suffering of that. We can feel into the constriction, the pain, and use this wisdom or this question, you know, 
not necessarily, again, to find the answer, but um, this question of, okay, there's suffering here. What's being believed? Just to begin to burst those bubbles of delusion, to recognize that, you know, what's being believed as opposed to the, the sense of that suffering coming from the sense that this is true, we begin to recognize our beliefs as beliefs. This is really powerful, this exploration, as we begin to recognize, oh, this is a belief. Maybe we can't, again, and I would not encourage a spiritual bypass of saying, well, I shouldn't believe that. But acknowledge it as, ah, this is what is being believed. Let's explore that. Look at that. Get, get to know what's happening there around that belief. In the Atakavaga, it's interesting that the attachment to beliefs is really sig- signaled out as the issue. There's a, a statement, um, and this is in the top of page five. A person who associates themselves with certain views, considering them as best and making them supreme in the world, they say, because of that, all other views are inferior. Therefore, they are not free from contention with others. In what is seen, heard, cognized, and in ritual observances performed, they see a profit for themselves. Just by laying hold of that view, they regard every other view as worthless. This statement apparently applies to views whether they are true or not. That we should not cling even to things, to views that are true. And the Buddha actually said in one place in the text, it's like, yes, there is truth. There is a single truth. Hard for us from our perspective of our usual way of relating to views to not see that as clinging to views. That's a koan, another koan in this teaching to me. It's like, what does it mean for the Buddha to say, yes, there is a single truth and not be clinging to that? I don't know what that means. But I do know that when I see myself clinging to views, I feel the suffering of that. And so that can be explored. So what did it mean for the Buddha to say there is a truth and not be clinging to it? I don't know, but I'm willing to explore it. Willing to explore, not by sidestepping it, but by recognizing, okay, this is belief. Belief is happening. So I'm going to skip over some of what I was going to talk about here and move on to the question of, so given that this this teaching says we should not cling to any views, what about right view? Where does right view come in? Again, another koan in this teaching to me. Um, and there's questions actually whether this particular teaching holds the perspective that um, using any kind of view 
is not the path. Essentially, the, the question is, does this teaching point to a non-path path? Some argue that yes, this text teaches the training where the path itself includes not holding any view at all. This might be in the flavor of, so that the no view is the path as well as the result of the path. This is, you know, the, the not holding to any view whatsoever is the path as, the, as well as the result of the path. And to some extent, this is the flavor I get when I read some of the Zen teachings. Um, this, you know, just, there's no path. Freedom is just there, you know. It's like, well, how do you do this? You know, I don't know. <laughs> um, my, my sense is that the, um, the readings of the passages, when I look at the, the, the passages in this text that refer to one who does not hold any views at all, these, and this, this came because of the encouragement by Tanisaro Bhikkhu to look at it from these three perspectives. So who is this verse describing? Is it describing someone in the training? Not holding any view? Or is it describing someone who's free? not holding any view. And my read of these teachings is that whenever it's describing someone not holding any view at all, that person is liberated. And so the Atakavaga to me does not point to that, don't hold any view at all. How would we get there? You know, what, 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 I mean, the whole, the whole teaching is a, is a direction, is a pointing for us. So perhaps some people might say, well, we're not supposed to cling to the teachings. Well, good luck. <laughs> Here's another text. The very first, the, the very first mentioning of views in the Atakavaga. And I think this is, a, to me, this is a, a, a teaching that points on two sides of the question. It's like, this is a, it's, you can take this teaching from two angles. How would one, led on by desire, entrenched, oops, I forgot the gender neutrality here, sorry about that. How would one, led on by desire, entrenched in their likes, forming their own conclusions, overcome their own views? They dispute in line with the way that they know. So, you know, this points to when we are entrenched in our views, we hold to those and we don't let other things in or you know we we dispute in line with that but this speaks to all of our predicament in the world we can't usually simply say i'm not going to cling to the dharma you know that would be the spiritual bypassing again you know it's like well yeah i am going to cling to the dharma and in fact, there is a teaching in some ways that I think speaks to this. I have, I have some teachers that, that don't like my talking about clinging to the Dharma, but um, at the same time, there's this teaching, that the simile of the raft. Are you familiar with, many of you I know are familiar with the simile of the raft. And that, that description talks about the, the path of practice moving from being caught on this side of the stream to crossing the stream, the, the stream representing the stream of greed, aversion, delusion, and landing on the far shore free from, free from clinging. Um, 
And the, the analogy talks about building the raft on this shore. And I like the fact that it's a raft. You know, it's, a, it's a, something we build out of sticks and mud and, you know, stuff that we find around us. The analogy says that the, the raft is basically the Eightfold Path. The Buddha points to the raft being the Eightfold Path. But it's put together out of our sense experience. It's put together about, uh, without what's around us. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. Our orientation towards that through the Eightfold Path. We build the raft and we cross over the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. The raft... You know, I'm envisioning this raft. It's pretty rickety. It barely keeps me above the water. This is a piece I love about this analogy, you know. The flood is said to be the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. We're on this raft. We're gonna get wet. So. The path of practice is about being in contact with greed, aversion, and delusion with this support of the path of practice. I don't think the Buddha would teach, let go of the raft in the middle of the river. We have to hold on to the raft. We have to make the effort with our hands and our feet to cross the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so, the analogy goes on, when we get to the other side of the, of the flood, the Buddha asks his um, monks, you know, is it useful at that point to say, oh, this raft has been really useful to me, I think I'll carry it around on my head. You know, at that point, no, that's not useful. You've crossed the flood, you can set it down. And at that point in that analogy, the Buddha says, the Dharma is not to be clung to. Wholesome states are not to be clung to. Even how much more so unwholesome states not to be clung to. And yet, that analogy points to letting go of clinging after we've crossed the river. Letting go of the clinging to the Dharma after we've crossed over. And so there's probably some transformation over that time. You know, we start out gripping onto the practice. I remember sitting there, oh, I really have to work to do this, you know. Try to be present for this difficulty, you know, just clinging to the Dharma, creating an identity around being the meditator. And, you know, it served, it served. At some point, I began to experience the suffering of that clinging. And then, that's the time to begin to look at that. When the suffering becomes obvious, we begin to see the clinging that's there and let that go. The, I understand the path of practice as being uncovering subtler and subtler forms of clinging. And as we reach them, that's when we work to let go of that clinging. If we're clinging to sense pleasure, that's not the time to let go of the identity of the meditator. So the, you know, it's, it's a staged kind of release that can happen. There's also a um, 
another perspective on views. This is one of, one of my favorite suttas too. It's uh, several reasons I love this one. It points to what kind of views are helpful to let us move in the direction of uh, transcending views. And so this is, a, this is a teaching, and one of the reasons I love this teaching is that it's given by Ananda Pindika, a householder. So this teaching is given by householders to um, monks from other wandering sects. And um, the monks see Ananda Pindika and they say, oh, let's, let's talk to Ananda Pindika. He's, he's a follower of that uh, Gautama, so let's, let's see what he has to say. And they come up to him and they say, tell us, tell us, householder, what views the contemplative Gautama has. And Ananda Pindika, being very honest, says, you know, I can't tell you what views <laughs> the blessed one has. And the, the monks think this is a little bit like, well, if you can't tell us what the views he has, then you obviously are not like, you know, knowing, you don't know his, his teachings. But they say, so well, well, so you don't know what views the contemplative Gautama has. Well, tell us what views the monks have then. He says, well, I can't tell you that either. He said, but I can tell you what views I have. He's, he's, they said, okay, so tell, tell us what views you have. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what views I have, but first tell me what views you have. And they start spouting off their views, which are these, you know, these speculative views I mentioned before, things like, you know, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless. The cosmos is not eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless. So, you know, you can see these different opinions, you know, the cosmos is finite, the cosmos is infinite, and each holding this perspective, only this is true, anything else is worthless. And um, when they were done, Ananda Pindika said, as for the one who says, and goes, he goes through this for every view that they've all said, as for the one who says the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. The view arises from their own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. And so this is, this is how views are formed. Views are formed from our own meeting the world with our experience. We, we um, contact the leg of an elephant and think, that's an elephant. We contact the trunk of an elephant and we think, that's an elephant. Perhaps not seeing the entirety. I'm just referring to this teaching story about the blind people and the elephant. You know, creating views out of our own direct experience, but not perhaps the entire picture. When views are created out of our direct experience, we tend to cling to them very tightly. We create views based on the opinions and views of others. Somebody has said, this is what's true. Oh, then that must be what's true. And again, a koan here, because the Buddha says the Eightfold Path, we need to follow this. It's like, okay, I'm gonna pick that one up. This view has arisen in dependence on his his words. So here's what Ananda Pindika goes on. He says, okay, so the views arise from their own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. This view has been brought into being, is fabricated, is willed, dependently originated. 
Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. The venerable one holding this view adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. And so here Ananda Pindika is pointing to the holding to that view, the holding to something that is inconstant, fabricated, creates stress. So again, it's the holding. It's the this is true, the, everything else is wrong. It's the holding to the view that Ananda Pindika is pointing to is creating the stress. It's like the view itself is there. It's fabricated. It's inconstant. Clinging to something that's inconstant is stressful, will create suffering. So after all of the... Um, He's responded to all of the uh, views of the um, other monks. They say, okay, now tell us what view you have. And Ananda Pindika says, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. And they try to pull the same argument on him. Well, you submit yourself to that same stress. You're just holding to that view. And Ananda Pindika says, when I see the stress of holding to the view, I understand it is fabricated. I understand that it is inconstant and that it creates stress to hold to it. And there is release in that. I'm paraphrasing. When this was said, the wanderers fell silent, abashed, sitting, sitting with their shoulders drooping, heads down, brooding at a loss for words. And then he, um, Ananda Pindika, went to the Blessed One and reported this exchange. And the Blessed One said, well done, householder. This is how you should periodically refute the wanderers of other sects. So again, this teaching points to using a view. In a sense, this view that Anandapindaka pointed to is a view that leads us in the direction of clinging to views is not helpful. So we can keep recognizing that. And I think this is, this is some of the paradox of the teachings that we have to keep Keep deepening, keep deepening. Oh, clinging to that. Oh, oh, and there's suffering there. And clinging to that, and clinging to that. Clinging to the teaching of non-clinging. Okay, let go of that. So, um, I think it's probably time for a break. And we'll come back at 10.30, and I'll... We'll take a little time for, for comments, questions after the break. So, um, 10.30. Silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.